you may feel insecure in that moment that you do not have a solid estimate. And we would totally understand why you would. But I guarantee that what you have in your hand as far as information is now more accurate than whatever you would have got if you had asked for hours. I promise you that this is a habit to build. Welcome to Building Better Games. Today we're going to be talking about estimation. Estimation, estimation, estimation. It just keeps coming up. Every guru, book, or local team lead has their own philosophy on it. There's even plenty of simple snake oil tricks you can learn to squeeze out what you need from the team and get them to estimate the way you want. This topic stinks so bad that most of us and our developers have become deeply cynical. Some questions we'll cover. How do you explain estimation to your team and give them confidence that it's actually useful? How do you know which estimation tools to use in different circumstances? What can you do as a leader when someone misuses your team's estimates? Aaron, let's dive in. Where do you want to start on this one? Well, so first of all, I want to talk about the conversation around estimation in video games right now, because when I hear producers talk, and when I see new producers trying to learn, um, this is one of those topics. It's like right up there with Jira and project management specifics and things that just comes up all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, it's also one of the topics where I view that 80% of the dialogue about it is either incorrect or at the very least misguided. Yeah. And when I say misguided, I'm particularly referring to the fact that I do not feel like most people understand estimation principles. We spend too much time arguing, debating, and sort of pontificating about this method or that method. And we don't take enough time to understand like how estimation actually works and how to achieve high confidence estimations uh, that actually will lead to accurate sort of trust building results. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. So let's actually talk about behavior because this was like a paradigm shift when I learned it. I had been exposed to traditional project management forms of estimation, like sort of stacking hours and things like this and, you know, detailed Gantt charts. And then I had also actually learned a decent amount of Scrum at the time. But I remember when I was taught, hey, look at the behaviors that happen here in effective estimation systems. It was a light bulb for me and it helped glue a lot of the pieces together. So like when you hear that, I'm curious, like what comes up for you? So in effective estimation systems, one of the things I think everybody brings to the table is an attitude of, I'm not sure what the right answer is, and an openness to the dialogue around that. Yeah. Simultaneously, there is a willingness to actually provide an estimate. Like if you're in an environment where that's culturally an acceptable thing and it's a healthy thing, I'm not scared of the number I'm going to provide. I don't believe that it will be misused or it will be held over my head as some sort of hammer. I can have a strong opinion weekly held type of thing. Yeah. I can have a strong opinion about how long this is going to take. And I can also recognize that someone may in three seconds say something that completely changes my understanding and would adjust my estimate. And I'm comfortable with all of that. Like I'm very happy with that. I also see in healthy estimation systems, a desire to get not a perfect answer, but a good enough answer that we can work with it. And I think there's an understanding of what it means to be able to work with the estimates we receive. You see behaviors where people are actually trying to give the decision makers 
that type of information so that they can choose what to do, what we're going to work on, what we're not. Well, I think what you're you're also pointing to an anti-pattern we see a lot on projects, on game projects, where it's so often the case that here's the game. We know what it is. We know all the pieces we need to build. Now let's estimate those so we know how long everything's going to take. There's something that's missed in that thought process, which is if you're going to be prioritizing, part of that conversation is informed by the estimates. So to really do a great prioritization, to really understand what's most important, it's not just in a vacuum. Yes. And and you also touched on this other point, which I think is really awesome, which is that so much of the conversation about estimation is what we're talking about when we use that word. And like when you see an estimate, what does that mean? Because we see wide variations in that, right? To some people, when they see an estimate, it means like, this is going to happen unequivocally on this date. Yes. And other people, when they see an estimate, they're like, that's probably wrong. And that represents the first draft of what this team is going to come up with on this issue. We assume, I think, so often that we all mean the same thing and we all take away the same things. But that's not often the case. Ben and I joke all the time because we've had this happen to us where we've actually created the slide that was like the first draft roadmap from all the estimations. And we put like caveats all over the thing and then come to find two months later or like three weeks later that there's some PowerPoint circling around the company about like all these big delivery dates that were just, you know, agreed on where our data, by the way, with caveats stripped out of the data is now being presented as like, this is definitely going to happen. And I think, again, what that really comes down to is this point is like, what does it actually mean when we make an estimate? And you know, so much of that context about how we treat this stuff is not to be taken for granted. Like when Ben and I teach classes on estimation, one of the things we do is we actually kind of tease the class with an example about how we react to a GPS system giving us estimates about when we're going to arrive. So like whether maybe that's Google Maps on your phone or your in-console GPS in your car, we as humans, we understand how to interact with that data because we actually all understand the rules of the road. And so we know what to expect and how high the accuracy is that we can expect from that machine. We blame ourselves still if we're late because like we know how inherently unpredictable that environment is. Now, the the interesting contrast we also make though is going back to software development, going back to game development, how completely unable we seem to be to accept that same level of uncertainty Yes. In our estimates, like for some reason, there's something about when we get together in person and we start building software or game products, we just think that all of a sudden we're going to have these like super high accuracy estimates. The layer that I think makes the game situation so much more complex in some sense than the cars driving on the road. Even if we built all the right pieces and all of our estimates were perfect, it's possible that the way it comes together isn't what we wanted or expected or isn't that great of a product to, a, to players. And so we might need to constantly be reevaluating and redoing things and all this stuff. And human beings struggle with that. If you're in a factory, right? If you're producing like cars or plushies out of a factory or something, you may actually have estimates that are down to almost the second. Yeah, and one of the principles we want you to take away as you listen to this, the phenomenon that Ben just described is actually a core part of understanding work in the modern world today. Like that defined process is where most of the estimation methods we use today come from. 
That factory system. Yeah. Correct. The factory system. And the challenge with that is that, as you know, if you work in creative development, most of those rules do not apply. And by the way, there's some people out there that might be, I do like character development or something like that. It's just a pipeline. We run through the pipeline of, uh, you know, doing the concept into the character, into the uh, rigging and animation and audio and et cetera. Like, you know, this does apply to you. Do not think that you are in the factory environment. That's a mistake. There's a lot of learning that is occurring, uh -huh. which is one of the key things in the more empirical systems, in those creative uh, dynamic systems. Learning is occurring constantly about what might work and what might not as you go through this. So as we talk about behaviors, going back to behaviors, because I think you were um, onto something really interesting there. So we, we use that um, GPS example. But yep. the main reason we bring that up is not just to sort of show the double standard between software development and the traffic environment. We asked the question of the class, what would happen if all of a sudden you got really upset and it became an issue for you to be two minutes late? Like what if like our mentality shifted and now all of a sudden we demanded pinpoint accuracy from Google Maps estimates about when we were going to arrive? And there's all sorts of things that you immediately, like people think of this and, and when, we're, when we're teaching it's, well, I wouldn't give an estimate anymore. Oh, I'd start giving a range. Oh, I'd pad the numbers a lot. Like there, there's all these different things that we do. And what's interesting is when you hear those things, that's what we do in game development when yeah. we're asked for estimates. That's what we do in software development. Yeah. We just by default, we start padding, we give ranges, we refuse to give estimates. And this is where a lot of the cynicism from development teams comes from on the topic of estimation because they start to do those things. They start to pat, they start to obfuscate, they start to give ranges. They get frustrated because they're like, what's the point of this? This is for some producer somewhere yes. or for some project manager somewhere. No one really wants to dig yes. in with me and understand the work. They just want me to produce a number that is satisfactory. Yes. And then it's no wonder, again, why when we bring up the topic of estimation with our teams, they get pissed off right. or frustrated or angry at us. And it's because they're tired of it. It's a meaningless thing that's put in a report that's compiled yeah. into the higher level report so that somebody somewhere can be like, by the end of 2027, this should be done. And it's like, we don't know anything about what's going to happen yeah. in 2027, but we pretend we do. Most human beings are overconfident estimators. I read in two different books, I don't know if they were referencing the same study, How to Measure Anything and Noise, both refer to CEOs as some of the worst estimators out there. And it was so interesting to hear that. Doctors were also very high and they were primarily overconfident. And I often think about that idea of like, why are we so overconfident in our estimates? And there's a lot we can go into in that. One of the core things is that it's really hard when we're asked to estimate something to actually think of all that's involved in its creation. Uh -huh. And so we tend to, if I ask a team that contains engineers and artists and audio and QA and all these things, and I say like, how long is this going to take? The engineer goes, well, how long would it take me to write the code? And the artist goes, how long would it take me to draw a concept? God, oh, you know, give me a couple days, I'll have you a concept. And what we often fail to consider, two things. One, we fail to consider how many times we might have to do and redo the work before it actually works. So maybe the concept artist does one and it's like, yeah, it doesn't really work. And then I have to do it again. And then I learn a few days later, oh, that, does, that still doesn't work and I have to do it again. And suddenly your three days is nine or 12 or 14. Like there's this expansion of time as you realize like, shoot, it was harder than I thought to get to the nebulous target of what it meant to have a good enough concept for this purpose, according to both my and somebody else's expectations of it. 
so that happens a lot. The second thing, we fail to consider that all the things we do in order to deliver value usually involve more than one person coming together to do them. And so it's not just that I have to do this code and there's someone who's going to do some art and there's someone who's going to do some audio or whatever. It's that when I finish the code, the code isn't actually done. When I finish writing the code, I still need to check it in somewhere. I still need to have, you know, maybe QA looks at it. Maybe it runs through some automated testing. It's going to come back to me. Maybe I need to talk with other teams about how I just interacted in, with my code, with their code and all these different things. We don't think about that when we're estimating most of the time. And again, I think what you need to understand as a leader on your teams, and this is very much to a lot of the points Ben just made, uh, most of the estimation methods available to us today do not appropriately incorporate the uncertainty that exists in our environments. Correct. So the reason we trust and value the GPS estimation method is because it does incorporate the uncertainty in the environment. And we understand the uncertainty that it is incorporating in its environment because we drive every day. So we get it. Yep. So these mismatches are what cause problems in the software development process. And we need to make sure that we are applying methods that actually capture that uncertainty because there is no estimation method that can remove that uncertainty for you. And that's another mistake I think a lot of project managers make in games that I've seen. They go and they think because they managed to squeeze an hour number out of every single developer that somehow they have now removed the uncertainty from the project. See, it adds up to 400 hours. So now I can draw my little burn down chart. I can, you haven't done anything. All you have done is fool yourself into believing that you have higher certainty than you actually do. I promise you, you need to just understand how much uncertainty is in, in, in your environment and then apply a tool that will capture that for you. Yes. So one of the simple examples we give to illustrate a concept is the 18 holes of golf analogy. So if you ask golfers to estimate how many swings it will take them to get through 18 holes of golf, they will be able to give you a better estimate for the overall 18 holes of golf than they will if you have them break that down into tasks and go task by task and then be like, okay, for each hole, how many swings will it take you? And then you add all those up. So the additive answers of all the individual hole estimates will be worse, will be less accurate than the holistic one. And the principle that I'm trying to convey to you here is that the big estimate captures a lot of variance and uncertainty. Yes. And that's just one example of how just a nuanced difference in the method and the approach and like how you ask for estimates can have a huge impact in like the actual accuracy that you get out of the system. I think that actually speaks to some of the negative behaviors you see in the unhealthy estimation environments that are frankly a lot more common than the healthy ones. And one of them is this idea that if I break this down far enough, then my, my numbers get better. And there's a confusion there and the, the technical confusion could be accuracy versus precision, where you're increasing precision, you think, right? Like I'm, I'm getting more precise in my estimates. I'm getting more detailed, but actually your accuracy is now going down because you've, you're operating almost entirely in the realm of the uncertain. And you just don't know when the uncertain is going to strike. And so you don't actually properly take it into account. This is one of the most common traps of the big Gantt charts where someone tries to lay out all the work that needs to be done for a feature or a DLC or a game or something. And we break it down into more and more granular detail. And we think we're adding value because we're becoming more precise. Like 
Look at how many more numbers we added together to get the estimate. I could give you a range that is much more likely to be accurate than this highly detailed breakdown of all these different pieces just by knowing sort of the genre you're going into and the size of your team and things like that. I could just be like, historically, teams of that size working on that type of project seem to take this long. And this speaks to another thing that is really important when we're talking about estimation. And it is the importance of looking into the past to try to predict some of the future. Now, past performance is no guarantee of future performance. This is known. However, if I have a team and they're stable and they're together and they have been doing work together and I can take a guess at how big something is going to be relative to things they've done in the past, I'm more likely to be correct about my prediction than if I try to get them all to estimate every little bit of it and then add all that together. And this is, this is something we call relative versus absolute estimation. And it's an important principle of estimation. Human beings are known to be better at relative estimation. Is this thing bigger than that thing? Is this building taller than that building? We do that quickly and intuitively. It's much faster than us when we're asked like to get absolute numbers. It's when we're asked to say, how tall is that building? Give me it in feet or inches or whatever. We actually, we have a lot of trouble understanding that, but we can usually tell which one is taller much more easily. That's relative. And relative estimation is very helpful when you're doing estimation in game development. Because if you're doing, if you're constantly doing relative estimation, you're constantly making a prediction about how large you think something might be, the size, the effort involved, whatever you want to say. Yeah. And you can compare that to things that are coming into your team and you can say like, well, this thing took three months. This looks like it's about twice as much. So maybe a decent guess is this will be six months. And what's interesting is, is I think what I've actually seen, if you unpack the mentality of a developer trying to give you an estimate, is that if you force an absolute estimate, like you're like, how many hours is this going to take? Or how many days is this going to take? Often the developers that are actually the best at answering those questions will in their minds reference work that was similar to the thing you're asking them about and then go, okay, well, that took me about three days. So instinctually use that as a basis for comparison, even when we're being asked for absolute estimates. And what we're saying is forget the absolute estimates. If you are in that kind of an environment, lean into those comparisons and ask your teams questions that surface those comparison points. So an example would be a new piece of work comes up and you need to get it estimated. So you walk over to your developers and you say, hey guys, do you think that this is bigger or smaller than that thing we just tackled last week? And you get them engaged in that conversation where the comparison function immediately forms the basis of the conversation. And they say, ah, oh, yeah, that's about twice as big probably. It, you may feel insecure in that moment that you do not have a solid estimate. And we would totally understand why you would. But I guarantee that what you have in your hand as far as information is now more accurate than whatever you would have got if you had asked for hours. I promise you that. I promise you that. And so this is a habit to build. It's like how you approach the team, how you engage them in conversation and what you're asking for are key aspects to your ability to get reliable estimates. So the first question we'd asked earlier was how do you explain estimation to your team and give them confidence that it's useful? As I think about that and I think about like what does it mean to develop these healthy estimation behaviors where we're strong opinions weakly held, a comfort with not knowing, uh -huh. like all, 
all these sorts of things, openness to the idea that I'm wrong, right? That don't see all the pictures and all those things. How do you move people towards that? We gave one thing that estimates are good for, and that is helping with prioritization, recognizing like the size of something, the effort something might take, as far as we know today, can help us understand what to do next. And that can be really helpful. There's other things in here as well, which is having that conversation reduces the uncertainty around the task itself. When we have a group of different disciplines coming together, all working on something together, which again, like we, we're a big fan of cross-functional teams. We really like that space. They gain an understanding of how each other work and what is hard or easy about each other's work when they do this. Uh, a simple example is, you know, if you have an animator and, and they seem to be able to produce a character's, like they seem to be able to take a rig and produce good character animations in two weeks and all they've ever done is bipeds and suddenly you concept out you know, a spider type thing, an arachnid, and it's got eight legs now, you might be surprised at just how much longer that might take your animator to do it. And if you never ask them and you just assume, well, it's just another character, we'll send it through the pipe, and you don't think about how that impacts every discipline following, hopefully the animator comes and yells at you and says, how in the world did you think I was going to do this in two weeks? This is like a monster thing and it's got eight legs. This is going to be really hard for me to do. I'm going to need extra time. That's one of the key reasons of that you estimate is to try to get people sharing those stories about why this is hard and why this is easy. I think another thing is that it is helpful to know when things are going to be done. And if, if I can predict when things are going to be done, I can plan things like, when do I want to, when do we're going to set up play tests for this game? Maybe that's a big deal and it's a cross team effort inside of a game project. Maybe there are actually deadlines and I want to understand, is it even reasonable for me to try to get all this done or should I already be cutting scope and choosing not to do things? There's a lot of reasons why estimates could be very valuable to your team. And you can talk them through all that. When you actually do it and you do it well and they start seeing the benefit and they start seeing how that actually helps their team be perceived as more effective as they meet estimates, as they achieve things, as they learn about what they're doing, as that removes more uncertainty in the system, that's when you really start getting in the benefit of like, oh, okay, now we kind of get it. Now we can see why this is worthwhile. Part of the value of the way we approach estimation is to get the team talking. And it's not just about being a kind citizen. It's also about sharing and spreading that context because that context is the single number one thing that's going to meaningfully burn down that uncertainty that you have in your system. The deeper that every single individual's understanding is of what is involved in the delivery of value, the more accurate your estimates are going to be in a high uncertainty environment. This is one of those principles you have to put in your back pocket. You cannot just create a big spreadsheet and get to certainty. Yes. The only way to get to certainty is to talk about the work all the time and compare the work to previous work that was done all the time. Yep. And then the product of those conversations are the estimates that you can then rely on. When I think about what is at the center of teams struggling with estimation, there's a, there's a couple of really bad ones that I think as a leader, you need to eliminate. The first one is one we touched on, which is this is a complete waste of time. Like this is something we do for project managers and it doesn't really help me get work done. doesn't help me work any faster. doesn't change when things are going to be done. So this is like, essentially, we're doing you a favor, a project manager, to get you off our backs. I see that all the time. And you can eliminate that by 
helping the team understand that there is value in it for them. Yeah. The second thing, and this one's even worse, but you see it a lot as well, is if in any way, shape or form, those estimates or the results of that data are going to be weaponized against the team at some point in the future, then you as a leader, I think you have a moral obligation to step in and work on changing the system that makes that true. Because as yeah. long as the team feels like the information that comes out of that process is going to be used against them, like you're never going to get anywhere. You're never going to get real value out of these systems. And you're certainly never going to get like excitement or engagement from the team on this stuff. So again, these are things as a leader, if, the, if this is describes the environment that you're in, you really need to get to work on protecting your team from some of that negative influence and maybe even working with your fellow leaders to come up with a better system that is more thoughtful about how you use and create estimation. I've been in situations where the team did not trust me as a producer, sometimes just because they didn't trust producers at all. Yep. And so when I went in there and started explaining estimation, you can imagine how that went. Like, yep. we just don't care. Like, I don't, this is another producer trying to explain some producery bullshit to me and I don't care. And And when I did have the trust of a team, Oftentimes, it didn't matter what specific implementation or method I was suggesting. I was able to get it through very quickly. So if you're in a situation where you don't have that trust, I might actually put estimation on ice for now and yeah. see what the smallest possible way that you can build trust up with that team is or demonstrate value to them. So that like, because the problem is, is again, the, this very technical stuff doesn't really resonate in a no trust environment. So I would just keep that in mind as well when you're talking about like, how yeah. do I actually convey this to my team? I have a story about a time I was estimating a fairly large project. Project ran in size. I think when I got there, it was like 16 or 17 people. It went up to like 55 people. At the very beginning, we didn't know how long it was going to take. And so I had just the leads create a quick like roadmap. This is how long this is going to take. By the way, these leads were super confident in this roadmap. And they were basically like saying, this old one will take two weeks and this will take four weeks. And I didn't know it at the time. They were falling into all of the very intuitive mistakes we talked about. They were not considering all the actual work that was involved, the iterations that will probably be present if like something needs to be redone. You know, what it looks like to go through approval gates and phases with others, other parts of the organization and stakeholders and whatnot. They weren't thinking about any of that. But I got the plan, you know, here's the plan and this is how we're going to be done. And it was going to take us a few months. We're going to knock all this out. And I remember we got one month into it and I was kind of like, I think we're a bit behind. A senior leader came to me in this meeting and said like, well, here's the timeline. This is when we said we'd be done. Are we still on track? And I turned and I made this mistake that it's so easy for leaders to make in these situations. And I said, shoot. Well, I want to seem confident and I want to seem like I know what I'm talking about. And it doesn't sound like it's a great thing to be like, I'm not sure these people respect confidence and assurance. And so I said, yes, we are still on track. This was a hope at best, a lie at worst. And I'll be honest, I think I was more in the hope phase. I was like, well, they told me that's how long it was going to take. So even though it's taken longer than we thought to get going, they've said we'll catch up and all these. I was rationalizing like crazy why the plan was still valid. But I feel bad about that to this day. And again, sorry, Joe, you had to go and take that information that I gave you and you probably gave it to someone else. And then later on, it turned out it was it was wrong by a factor of like five. The total development took so much longer than we expected. 
but I'd done all the things that we usually do when we estimate. I'd brought together all the leads. I'd looked at all the work that we knew we needed to do. In this case, that work was relatively well-defined. And I'd had them all put all the pieces together and we'd arranged it in the Gantt chart. And I'd tried to leave some buffer and all these things that, you know, we do. And I was off by a factor of five. I thought this thing was going to take five months and ended up taking close to two years. That's how so many people are trying to do their estimates. And what was great about that company at that time, they didn't force us to try to meet those estimates when it became clear they were unreasonable. They didn't just say like, well, that's the time you gave, so you have to figure it out by that time. If they had, we would have delivered a crappy product. Instead, we were able to adjust. We were able to modify the plan. I was able to gain some experience. But like the, these traps are everywhere and be careful with them because one of the reasons that estimates are so often bad is because we are incentivized towards bad estimates. Not because anybody's like, I want to incentivize bad estimates, but because of all the little behaviors that are inside of the estimation system. Yeah, there's a couple more principles we want to cover. And one of them is the idea of the last responsible moment. And the other one, and the, I think the bigger one, which dovetails into that, is the idea of size versus time. Mm -hmm. So when Ben and I are teaching estimation, we'll often address the class with an example of driving from the LAX airport to Disneyland. And sometimes we'll make up two different locations if we're like teaching a class in Germany or whatever that German people actually know. But the idea is thinking about the distance between two points uh, driving wise or whatever that you're familiar with. And we ask everybody to estimate how long it's going to take to get from point A to point B without asking us any clarifying questions. And as you can imagine, what happens is as people start yelling out answers, you get wide variance and you get a lot of padding and you get like all like some of these other things that we talked about before. And then we'll start doing things like now you're driving at 5 a.m. on a Sunday. All of a sudden, people's estimates get much more focused and much more crisp. If you're driving from LAX to Disneyland at 5 a.m. on a Sunday morning, you know that the only thing that's limiting you from getting there is how heavy you're willing to put your foot on the pedal, basically. And if I ask you to go at 4 p.m. on a Friday, you are going to be in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic the entire way. And you just understand that. This is the one of the key dangers with raw time estimates that nobody talks about. Just with a little bit of a shift in context, your time estimates just are all over the place. Yes. So now you think you're going to take this highly context-sensitive environment called software development and game development, and you're going to be able to just slap an hour's estimate onto something that a developer isn't going to work on for three months that is based upon two other components that aren't even built yet, and you think you're going to get an accurate time estimate? No. There's a reason why in a lot of sort of empirical or agile methodologies like Scrum, we don't turn things into hours until right before we're about to start the work during sprint planning. And the reason why is very intentional. It's because we do not have enough context to do that, to create those absolute estimations before that point. So that's what I mean by the last responsible moment. When you're in a high uncertainty dynamic system like game development, you only want to change to an absolute estimate at the last possible moment, the last responsible moment before the work starts. And again, this illustrates how important that context is and how much that dynamic context drives the reality. Yes. And by the way, this when I see those big project plans and game development where everything's broken down into tasks and hours and stuff, like 
I don't even have to ask any clarifying questions. I'm like, this is highly inaccurate. Yes. And so, again, when we're talking about size versus time, it's important to note that if I had a number for size or if I just said the distance between LAX and Disneyland is a medium, that's not going to change. That does not change with context. It's always a medium. So now later we can identify the context that's going to get us to that specific time estimate. But this is why the size function in relative estimation is such a powerful and provides a more long lasting evidence too, by the way. Something also I noticed no one talks about is that often when we slap hours on stuff or absolute estimates on things very early, we end up having to redo it like on a regular basis because we realize that those numbers go out of date so quickly. But I've seen relative estimated backlogs be able to last a very long time, sometimes months or even years, because a lot of that uncertainty is bucketed into those estimates. If we take a step back and we understand sort of human nature here, we can wrap our heads around the idea that it is very convenient to, if you see something where they're like, well, this is, you know, 50% confidence interval we deliver by March or 80% confidence interval we deliver by uh, July to have somebody look at that and be like, ah, 50, 50 is about as good as it gets anyway. And just strip out all the other bars and just leave the 50% confidence interval data. And oh, by the way, rip out the part that says 50% and then put that in a nice looking deck somewhere. And then we all get to celebrate and feel good about what we've accomplished because wow, everyone was so surprised that it was going to come in this early, et cetera, et cetera. It's easy to do that. I think that as a leader, it's your responsibility to continue to try to direct the conversation in an effective way. Yes. And I think one of the things you can do is sit down and explain to people what you mean with certain data and how they should use that data effectively. Try to shift the culture toward an effective use of those numbers and help them understand also that if they misuse that, that could actually blow back on the team who's working really, really hard. Right. Yes. And understand the ways that that could blow back on the team. You could actually have a light bulb for someone go on and go, you know, actually the big one is, is like, hey, do you understand what could happen if you say that this is definitely going to be done in March? It doesn't get done till August. You piss off a bunch of people and then they look at the team and go, well, I guess the team's late. And what really happened was that you misused the data. So be sensitive and understand that there are consequences to these decisions. There's short-term consequences and long-term consequences, right? And as a leader who's responsible for a team and responsible for delivering product, it's actually much to your benefit to ensure that this stuff is used properly. If we use this data properly and we understand these processes and principles properly, we can actually get to a place where we're reasonably predictable around when stuff happens. And that's a great place to be. Like so few companies ever hit that. Yeah. And if and if you can say, hey, well, we're pretty confident, actually. This team's done it five times before. We're pretty confident that they can hit this. Gosh, is it so much easier to plan? Is it so much easier to prioritize? So much easier to make sure your team gets time off and that they don't crunch? Like everything becomes easier when we get better at this. Yes. It's, so it's not just about sitting in the room and do I use poker planning or do I use affinity estimation? It's like building a good, healthy, institutionalized stance towards estimation and your organization will make everything better. Everything. So this is worth your investment. It's worth talking about. It's worth collaborating on. Here's something I would say. Estimation is 
a tool to assist in the delivery of value within an organization. Estimation is not the point. You're better off not estimating if it's getting in the way of value than estimating. Estimation is not a goal unto itself. It is not a value unto itself. It is something that should assist. There are a lot of organizations that spend a hell of a lot of time building project plans and estimating and getting no like real clarity around when things are going to be delivered. If you think that's what's happening at your company or people generally feel like that's happening, you are actually, believe it or not, better stopping estimation completely. Yes. Neutral or negative value from estimation is unacceptable. The only way estimation is worthwhile is if it's adding positive value. If it's not, the estimation needs to go away or change so that it can add positive value. And an interesting thing is when it's adding positive value, especially to the team, now suddenly you don't have to convince everybody to estimate because they'll be able to see the value. Let it work itself out over time. Remember, it's just one part, one tool, one assist in the delivery of value. If it is not doing that job well, if it is not helping you deliver value, you shouldn't even be thinking about it, putting time towards it or whatever until you can figure out a way to do it so that it helps. Awesome. So as we close up, let's review kind of the high level things we covered and what we want you to take away from this podcast. In this episode, we gave you an overview of estimation from a principled perspective and provided tools to help you and your team estimate better in a variety of circumstances. These are the things we want you to remember. First thing, understand your frameworks, things like relative versus absolute, size versus time, estimating in a value-driven system or a plan-driven system, capturing uncertainty in your approach. These kinds of frameworks will help you. Also make sure not to forget that human behavior is a factor here and bad systems will create really bad behaviors. Number two, understand estimation behaviors and how they drive a culture at your company. So like I said, just like not understanding those principles can drive the wrong kinds of behaviors, the behaviors that come out of estimation will create an estimation culture at your company. And it may not be one that you like either. And it's certainly not going to give you any accurate data. Number three, explain to your team why this approach makes sense and make sure it actually does. And like we talked about earlier, that's going to be based on the trust that you've created with them as a leader. Number four, walk your stakeholders through the caveats. Like we said, get ahead of that problem of people potentially misusing data. Mentally prepare everyone for the realities of how to use and consume this data. Talk them through the risks. Help them understand how they can get what they want and show them how and provide that for them. But get ahead of the problem so that you don't run into a situation where, you know, the team is having data weaponized against them, for example. Number five, in the end, understand that people will still misuse your estimates and don't worry about it too much. Like estimation, it will work itself out over time. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Building Better Games. If this episode helped you today, please take a moment right now to rate us wherever you're listening. It means a lot to us. We actually got a couple, so follow those leaders and go ahead and give us a star rating. All right, have a good one.